Chapter Four of the Sacred Herb by Fergus Hume. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Evidence for the prosecution. The court had reassembled rather late in the afternoon, so there was little chance of much evidence being taken. Prelis went back to his seat, still wondering what thought hovered at the back of his brain about Easter Island. He had visited that lonely and little-known spot during his travels in the company of a friend given to occult studies, who insisted that the dismal spot of land was one of the remaining portions of the great continent of Lemura, which was said to have stretched from New Zealand to Africa. They had seen the famous statues and had fraternized with the somewhat dirty natives, who had welcomed them warmly, as might be expected seeing how few visitors ever came to the desolate land. For one week, Prelis and his friend, Dr. Horace, by name, had dwelt with the savages and during that time had seen much of their manners and customs, and even had witnessed religious rites in front of the gigantic statues. Prelis had an idea that there he had seen something suggested anew by this murder case but vainly attempted to recall what it was. His memory would not help him in the least. Meanwhile, Shepworth, looking much more cheerful now that he had unbosomed himself to his chum, was again beside Cudworth, K.C., and young Arker. Belmain called his first witness as soon as the judge took his seat, in the person of the medical man who had examined the body of the murdered baronet. The medical evidence was very scanty. Dr. Quick stated that, to the best of his belief, the dead man had been stabbed somewhere about ten o'clock. The blow had been delivered straight and strong, and the blade of the weapon used had penetrated right to the heart. Death must have taken place instantaneously, and while Sir Oliver, suspecting no treachery, had been reading... Belmain, in cross-examination, deduced from this that the prisoner was guilty, since Sir Oliver would scarcely have turned to his reading again had a stranger been in the room. Also had the person who committed the crime been one whom the dead man suspected of such design, he would assuredly not have presented a defenseless back to such an assailant. No, it was evident that the prisoner, after quarreling with her uncle, had waited until he again was buried in his books and then stabbed him with the paper knife. The doctor stated that the wound had been caused by a broad, thin blade, which exactly described the jade handle paper knife which was missing. Several of the Grange servants were called to prove that Sir Oliver had been heard quarreling violently with his niece. He was, as the evidence proved, a very hot-tempered and imperilous man, and used language of the worst. In fact, the coachman, called to prove an outburst of temper when driving his master, said the late baronet could outswear any navvy. It was also clearly proved that Sir Oliver and his niece were on the worst possible terms when the crime was committed. Several times Sir Oliver declared that he would disinherit her, unless she surrendered her will and married Captain Jadby. But prisoner, as her maid said, 
had as impetuous a temper as her uncle, and was well able to hold her own. I don't mean, said the witness, that Miss Chent was ever unkind to me, for she always behaved with consideration. I only mean that Sir Oliver could not browbeat her as he did the rest of them. What do you mean by that? asked Belmain. Who did he browbeat? Captain Jadby, for one, sir. He was fond of Captain Jadby, and used to walk arm in arm with him in the garden, using him as a crutch for his lameness, as it were, sir. But he stormed a good deal, and Captain Jadby didn't fight like Miss Chent. You imply, then, that Captain Jadby was frightened of Sir Oliver? Witness, evasively. I don't know, sir. I'm sure that my master was a terrible man, and only like those who gave way to him. In cross-examination, Cudworth for the defense asked, Do you believe that prisoner is capable of committing the alleged crime? No, sir, no, declared the lady's maid fervently. Miss Chent is as good and kind a young lady as ever breathed. I don't think for one moment that she killed the master and no more does anyone else. The other servants gave similar evidence, all pointing to Sir Oliver's ungovernable temper and to Miss Chent's dexterous way of managing him by meeting like with like. With Sir Oliver she fought on every occasion, otherwise she would have been reduced to slavery. But with other people Miss Chent was always kind and even-tempered. Although the witnesses called were for the prosecution, not one of them would confess to a belief in the prisoner's guilt. Belmain was rather disconcerted by his unanimous approval of Miss Chent, and tried his best to bully the witnesses into blaming her. But he failed on every occasion, and even when Mrs. Blexey was hoisted into the box, he could not induce her to run down the girl. This loyalty created a deep impression, and prisoner for the first time showed emotion. Mrs. Blexey was very stout and very red-faced and very tall and extremely frightened. She looked like an elephant and certainly possessed the timid nature of a rabbit. The contrast between her gigantic appearance and her timid speech amused those present so greatly that a continuous tittering was heard until the judge threatened to clear the court. Belmaine, you are Emma Blexey, the late Sir Oliver's housekeeper? Mrs. Blexey, yes, my lord, with a curtsy. Belmaine, facetiously, you need not give me a title before I have earned it, my good woman. Laughter. Mrs. Blexey, oh, no, my lord, I mean, my dear sir, laughter. When the laughter over this second form of address had subsided, Mrs. Blexey stated that the prisoner was as attached to her uncle as he was to her. They had tiffs on occasions, as Sir Oliver's temper was none of the best, but Miss Chent was never in the wrong, and usually contrived to pacify the irascible baronet. He was as fractious as a child, said the housekeeper and required similar management, but on the whole he and Miss Chent 
Miss Blexy refused to call her young mistress the prisoner, got on extremely well. As to the phrase about disinheriting, that was a favorite threat of Sir Oliver's, which meant practically nothing. He used it on every occasion, sometimes in earnest and often in fun. It meant nothing, she said again. Belmain. He meant it when the prisoner refused to marry Captain Jadby, no doubt. Mrs. Blexey wiping her red face. The Lord knows what he meant, sir. He was a queer gentleman. Then Belmain proceeded to question the housekeeper regarding the admission which Steve Agstone was said to have made to her. It would have been preferable to obtain the evidence of the old sailor firsthand, but since he could not be discovered, the counsel got what he could out of Mrs. Blexey, and what she knew he had to drag out of her by persistent questioning, for her sympathies were entirely with the prisoner. She stated that Agstone drank a great deal and was always in trouble with Sir Oliver on that account but that he had been the baronet's factotum for many years he would have been dismissed dozens of times. A drunken, grumpy, sullen savage was the description given by the housekeeper, but he was good-natured enough when sober, she confessed, and quite devoted to Sir Oliver. Belmain, a kind of loyal henchman, in fact. Well, and what statement did he make to you, and when did he make it? Mrs. Blexey, on the morning after the murder, Agstone, or Steve as everyone called him, was drinking rum to drown his grief at the death of Sir Oliver. He sat for a long time in my room weeping and said that he knew Miss Mona would do for her uncle. Those were his very words, and I told him he was speaking rubbish. Belmain, what happened then? Mrs. Blexey, he fired up and declared that while waiting up on the previous night for Captain Jadby, he had gone down the avenue to see if he was coming. Not finding him and seeing the light still in the library, he wondered if Captain Jadby had arrived and had gone in to say good night to Sir Oliver. He therefore went to one of the windows and saw Miss Chent stooping over the fire to burn something. Sir Oliver was leaning forward on the desk with his head on his outstretched arms. Miss Chent also had a knife in her hands. Steve said that he thought there had been a row, and that Sir Oliver was weeping, as he sometimes did, being old and feeble for much hardship. He said that, had he guessed that Miss Chent had just murdered his master, he would have given the alarm. As it was, Afraid lest Sir Oliver should be angry at his spying, he stole back into the house by the front door and went to his own room at the back of the house. There he waited for Captain Jadby and rushed into the library when he heard the bell. Belmain, I understood that Agstone told you that he had actually seen the prisoner kill Sir Oliver. Prelice, in the body of the court, thought so too, as he remembered what Ned had said during the luncheon. But Mrs. Blexey emphatically denied such a story. I mentioned the matter to Mr. Shepworth, but I am sure that he said nothing. But Steve might have talked in his drunken way to others, and might have told a different story. 
I know that there is a prevailing impression that he saw the murder, but he did not say so to me. So spoke Mrs. Blexie, and Belmain looked worried. You are telling the truth, he demanded in vexed tones. I am here to tell the truth, retorted Miss Blexie, and I am. So there. After this somewhat incoherent speech, she was cross-examined by Cudworth and expressed her belief that Agstone had scarcely measured his words. Being devoted to Sir Oliver himself, he had always been very jealous of the favor shown to Miss Chent and fairly hated her. Undoubtedly, his wild maunderings were intended to hurt Miss Chent and to get her into trouble. But Agstone had disappeared before the inquest, where he would have had to give evidence on oath. Mrs. Blexie firmly believed that had he been put on his oath, he could not have substantiated what he had said to her. I never could bear that Steve, she cried. He was a sneaking dog, saving your presence, and had no love for anyone except Sir Oliver. Do you know where he is now? asked Belmain, returning to the attack. No, I don't, sir, and I don't want to. I quite believe that, rejoined Counsel dryly, seeing that you are prejudiced in prisoner's favor. As Mrs. Blexie had surmised that Steve might have told a story of actually seeing prisoner kill her uncle to the other servants, Belmain recalled several witnesses but not one of them could state that the current report was true. Steve had certainly hinted to several that he could bring home the crime to Miss Chent, but he had supplied no details, and as his hints were given when he was drunk, no one paid much attention to them. On the afternoon of the day following the night of the murder, Steve had gone out for his usual stroll in the direction of Sandgate, and had not returned. The evidence of a detective proved that he had taken the train to London and had been traced as far as Charing Cross Station. There he had disappeared, and in spite of all search, his whereabouts could not be discovered. By this time it was growing late, and judge, jury, lawyers, and listeners all exhibited symptoms of weariness. Therefore the court rose, with the intention of sitting at eleven o'clock on the following morning. It was the general opinion that, unless Steve Agstone could be placed in the witness box, the prisoner would not be convicted. Also Miss Chent's calm demeanor and the loyalty of the Grange servants, which had placed her character in so attractive a light, went far to enlist public sympathy in her favor. Those who left the court had more belief in her innocence than when they had entered. Many insisted that she could not possibly be guilty, but others, pointing to the fact, which had been forthcoming at the inquest, that she had burned a new will disinheriting her, declared that, without doubt, she had murdered her uncle so as not to lose the money. All the same, the majority favored the prisoner, and many well-wishers hoped for her acquittal. Shepworth was pleased and hopeful. "'The tide is quite in Mona's favor, Dory,' he said to Prelice when the court rose. "'And unless Steve Agstone turns up, she must be set free, 
for want of evidence. There is the question of the burnt will, you know, Ned. We can prove that it was the will made in Mona's favor which was burnt, said Shepworth decisively. Sir Oliver made no new will, as he had not left the house for quite a month, and could not have altered his will before then. His lawyer never came down to the Grange to draw up a will, and if Sir Oliver had drawn up a new one himself, he would have asked some of the servants to be his witnesses. We know that no one was asked to witness any document. Captain Jadby and Steve Agstone might have witnessed. No, there is a chance certainly that Agstone might have done so, but one signature would have been of no use, and had Jadby witnessed a new will, he would not have benefited under it. Besides, since he had the will made in the South Seas, and Sir Oliver assuredly wished him to have the money along with Mona, all that had to be done was to destroy the will made in Mona's favor, and then Jadby, having the cash, could leave her penniless unless she married him, which is just what has happened, ended Shepworth. Of course, said Prelice thoughtfully, Miss Chent might have been trying, when seen by Steve, to rescue the will from the fire into which it had been thrown by Sir Oliver. Shepworth wheeled round, do you believe that she is guilty? Oh, no, but we must look on all sides, and Agstone is a liar, interrupted the barrister quickly. I don't believe that he saw Mona bending over the fire. She was insensible, by her own showing, from the moment she entered the room until Jadby woke her. And remember that I found her insensible. It would help her if you said so. I don't agree with you. Were I examined about my presence in the library, I might let slip that the knife— Yes, yes, said Prelice hastily. I see. It would be better for you to hold your tongue. I hope that Agstone will not appear. If he does not, Mona is safe, rejoined Ned with a sigh of relief. Oh, poor Mona, think of her in prison, Dory. She will soon be out of it, answered Prelice soothingly. I am quite sure that she will be acquitted. Where are you going now? Home to my flat. I am quite worn out. Come and look me up this evening about ten or eleven when I have had a sleep. I live at Alexander Mansions, Kensington Gore, number forty. Alexander Mansions, repeated Prelice, surprised. Why, here is the long arm of coincidence, Ned. Mrs. Dolly Rover has asked me to a masked ball, which she is giving in her flat. A most unsuitable place for a ball mask, I think. Oh, no, said Shepworth, with a flush of color, though why he should show this emotion Prelice could not say. The flat occupied by Mrs. Rover is above mine. She has, in fact, two flats furnished on a most palatial scale. Her husband is a rich little beast, you know. Why a little beast? asked Prelice, rather perplexed. Shepworth's color grew deeper. He is not worthy of his wife. She was Miss Newton, you know, very clever and very beautiful. Dolly. Fancy a man being called Dolly. Short for Adolphus, it is not an uncommon abbreviation. 
It is contemptible for a man, and he's a rat. Dolly Rover, added Shepworth contemptuously. Phew! The infeminate monkey. Well, good-bye. I'll see you between ten and eleven. When Ned jumped into a cab, Prelice walked home wondering why he should run down the dapper little stockbroker whom Miss Newton had married. Then he remembered that Shepworth had admired Miss Newton before she changed her name to Rover. End of chapter 4